in Revelation 1 this morning. We're continuing a short series through the first three chapters. We went to a wedding last night. Uh, Jim and Rowena McCauley's daughter, Gwen, wed Les Bartles. Thank you. I would not have remembered his last name, Wes Bartles. Uh, it was fun. You know, we've had two funerals in two weeks. It was nice to go to a wedding. Uh, weddings are always fun. Anyway, it was a good reminder. And thinking about this morning's teaching, you know, you've got this bride and groom. You know, you know what they look like up on stage when they're getting married. You know, they've got these smiles on their on their face they cannot wipe off. And you know, when they're introduced as Mr. and Mrs. and they walk down the aisle. They're just they're gushing over one another. It's, uh, it's an encouraging thing. It's a great reminder. This morning's text, John the Apostle, he's old now. This is an old guy. And he's on an island out in the Mediterranean, his prison keep. And as he's addressing the churches, as he's going to communicate the things God wants him to, here's this old man, prisoner on an island, and he's gushing. And it's refreshing. It's a great encouragement for us. And as we start, let me pray just about this as well. Lord, just help us to be hearing what your spirit wants to say to us this morning as a church and as individuals. Thanks that you're alive today, that your word is also. And Lord, we trust that we're hearing what you want us to hear and help us to do it also in Jesus' name. We'll start at verse 4 in a minute. If you remember, it's been a while since we opened this book, but you remember we said that this book, the Revelation, is not a technical title. It's a description of the book. This book is supposed to reveal Jesus Christ to us. We said in the introduction, if we come away and we know... Hi, dear. Uh, Good to see you. If we know about uh, eschatology and timelines and antichrists and beasts, but we forget Jesus, we have missed the entire thrust of this 22-chapter book. That's the bottom line. It's to reveal the person of Jesus. We said that God saved the best for last in that sense, that of this 66-book library, which is our Bible, the last book says it's expressly written so that Jesus would be revealed to us. The Father delights in the Son and delights to reveal him to us. That's the bottom line. Also, that this was a unique book because it starts with a promise that those who hear, those who read, and those who keep or do the things written in it are blessed or happy or prosperous. That's, that's something you can take to the bank. Well, this morning we'll jump in verses 4 through 8. <clears throat> 4 through 8, Revelation chapter 1. We'll read through the passage and then we'll come back and work our way through it. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so. Amen. Or yes. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Back at verse 4, start this off. John says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Seven churches, uh, why seven, why Asia, etc.? That's my question. Uh, the answer, at least in part, seems to be seven is going to be used throughout this book. I think by my count, I've got 55 times. There's a little over 300 uses of the number seven in the Bible. And a sixth, more than a sixth, are in this one short book. You know, when you read the Bible, many numbers, most numbers have some kind of significance. And seven typically is used to represent something that's complete or perfect. It's what it should be. So in God's economy, the week is seven days long. That's a full week. It's a full cycle. Or if you look in Israel's calendar, seven times seven Seven years times seven years is the Feast of Jubilees. Or, <clears throat> excuse me, in Daniel's prophecy, 70 periods of 70 years. It's this number that represents completion or fullness or perfection. So one reason probably why John is writing to seven and only seven, not more, not less, churches, is because God wants us to know that this message is complete. It's not only filling up the measure of, his, of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, but it's a complete message to the churches. It doesn't lack anything. It's just what God wants it to be, seven churches. Another reason probably why it's seven and these seven is because there were really these seven churches in Asia with needs that we'll see as we work through. There's one letter addressed to each of them before we get into the body of the text, the more prophetic sections. But these churches really existed. In all likelihood, there were more than these churches in Asia. In this corner of Turkey, you know, if you're looking at the globe today or map today, what we're calling Asia is Turkey. <clears throat> Probably more, but God chose these specific churches. They had real needs, and God really addresses them. So it was certainly written for them at that time. That's another reason. The third reason has to do with uh, being representative you and I today can read any one of the letters to the seven churches that will come up in chapters 2 and 3, and we can read things that apply to you and I as individuals, or we as a church can read these letters, or any church can read them, and see things that apply to any church at any time. In that sense, the letters are representative, the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, you cover all kinds of bases, uh, proper doctrine, false doctrine, lukewarmness, uh, right heart, first love. There's all kinds of things that churches and individuals need to be reminded of, and those are brought up in these seven letters. The churches that were represented there stand for us today or for a church at any time or for an individual at any time. The third, uh, or along with that, another uh, reason under that to representative, a little different. Some people find this controversial. I don't press it too much, but that in all likelihood, these churches, in the order they're written to, probably represent also the church through history. Um, if, you, if you don't want to buy into that, that's fine. But you can look, if you look, for instance, at Ephesus, at what's said to Ephesus. Uh, here it's a church with pure doctrine. They check the people that say they're apostles and they aren't. They find them out. They work hard. That certainly is descriptive of the apostolic period of the church in the first century period. You go to the second church, it's Smyrna, and what's happening at Smyrna? These guys are persecuted and they're martyred for their faith. And, and guess what happens historically following the apostolic age? Periods of great persecution under the Romans. So there's, there's something to be said for this as well. If we see that, you can see Philadelphia for existence, the great missionary movements of the 1700s, 1800s. 
It's a period where God says to Philadelphia, you don't have a lot of power. You've got a little power, and you've got an open door. And this is a period in which you see the church evangelizing the world in ways it had not prior to that. And then you end up at Laodicea, this lukewarm church, thinks it's wealthy, really isn't. I'd make a plea that that's the church, at least in the West today. So also we can look at this as representative of the church through history. So seven churches, uh, seven a complete account of what God wants to say to the church, seven real churches with real needs, and then seven churches as representative for people or churches at any time, and then probably indicating the church through history over time. Uh, Look at verse 4. Verse 4 opens with a familiar phrase. John says, as he introduces this to the churches, grace to you and peace. Uh, The Greek for grace there is charis, and we get uh, get a couple of words. Uh, Charity comes from this word love. Love or charity comes from this word charis. Uh, Charismatic uh, is a grace gift. Uh, When you talk about charismatic gifts, the word just means a grace gift, a love gift, something freely given. We typically think of it as a word that means favor. You have favor with God, favor you didn't earn or work for, simply love and favor that God has just given you, given us. So when John writes to these churches, he opens by saying, grace to you and peace. You've got God's love and his favor and his peace. And remember, he's writing to Christians and to Christian churches. These are folks that are reconciled to God. You remember Paul says in Romans, we have peace with God. Why? Because we've been reconciled to God through his son, Jesus. So before John says anything else to these churches, he reminds them that their standing before the Father is one of grace and peace. And in fact, if you look at every one of Paul's epistles, they all start with this same phrase, grace and peace. That's God's attitude towards us today because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. As we look at the rest of verse 4 and into verse 5, John introduces us here to the Trinity. When he says grace to you and peace, he tells us who it's coming from. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. In this book and elsewhere in the Bible, this represents God the Father. You can look at Revelation 4, 8, 11, 17, and 16, 5 and see the same phrases. This always represents God the Father, the one who was, is, and is to come, the eternally existent one, the one without beginning and without end. This is God the Father. So grace and peace to you from God the Father, the eternally existent one. You remember when Moses meets God at Sinai in the burning bush? And when Moses says to God, who do I say sends me? What does God tell him? God the Father, speaking from the bush, says, you tell them that I am sent you. Who is I am? I am is the one who was and who is and who is to come, the eternally existent God. That's God the Father. God the Father, the eternally existent one, says to us grace and peace. Also grace and peace from, he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his God's throne. The thought here probably is not that we're to see seven spirits, whatever you envision spirits to be, whether it's flames, flickering flames, or whatever. It's not that they're seven individual spirits, but it's God the Holy Spirit represented again by this number seven, which means perfection or completion, all that he should be. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, when Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah, it's interesting, 
uh, I don't know if we're meant to think of this passage or not, but when Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah, he says that the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of deity would be on the Messiah. And when you read this passage, Isaiah 11:2, the spirit of the Lord, that is the spirit of God or deity, will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. This description of the Holy Spirit on God's anointed one, his deliverer, his Messiah, is described in this sevenfold manner. So when John says grace to us and peace from the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the perfect Spirit of God. It's this second member in this order of the Trinity. God the Holy Spirit also sending us, as it were, grace and peace. And then at verse 5, God the Son. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Grace and peace from the Father, eternally existent, from the Spirit, perfect, full, complete, and from the Son. It's fitting that in a book in which we're already told the Father wants to reveal the Son, that while the Father and the Spirit are described basically in one facet, the Son is given a threefold description here. It says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Faithful witness. Think about this for just a minute. You remember the Greek for witness is martyr. He's the faithful martyr. And again, we, we tend to think of that as, as a witnessing through your death, but every Christian is called to be a martyr in that we testify, we witness to God and to the gospel. In Jesus' case, the witnessing does go to death, doesn't it? In fact, his witness without his death would have been, in some sense, meaningless because there'd be no redemption. So Jesus comes, and if you remember in John's gospel, the same writer is the one that says, you know, Jesus says, I don't speak from myself. I speak from the one who sent me. The words that I speak, I didn't come up with them by myself. They're the words my Father has given me to give you. He was a faithful witness. That's what Jesus claimed. It's what, G, it's what John reminds us of here. And then in the end, that that witness was fulfilled in actually being a martyr in the sense we think of in dying on the cross. His testimony, the ultimate aspect of that testimony was his faithfulness in dying on the cross. That was his mission in coming. Any words he said wouldn't have helped us if he hadn't witnessed in the end through his death on the cross. He's also, it says, the firstborn of the dead. It's hard to underestimate the importance of either of these. The firstborn of the dead, you can read stories today about people who have died and come back. You can read in the Old Testament and the New Testament stories about people who died. They were dead. There was no question about it. And then they were raised again. You can read it in the periods of Kings, uh, John 11, Lazarus, probably the easiest one to think about. But what happened to all those guys that were brought back? They died again. They died again. It wasn't a meaningless resurrection. They they were dead, and they came back. That's no small thing. But they died again. In other words, death still ruled. Sin and death still reigned. So when this says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, this is the beginning of the new realm. This is the new birth. This is the thing that death is dead, that death... Power, sin's power, death is now gone forever. So that when Jesus dies, buried, and rises, his resurrection is the first, he's the firstborn, 
First means there's many more to come. You remember in the Jewish holidays, one of the feasts was ingathering. What would they do? They would take that first sheaf they cut, and they would take it before the temple, and they would wave it before the Lord. That was an indication that this is just the first of many. And that's part of the thought here, too. Jesus conquered sin and death. This was a real resurrection without sin and death or judgment ever to come again. And he's the first. He conquered sin and death. And then he conquered it for us. So that just like that sheaf that was waved before God at the temple in the tabernacle, it promised that there was much more to come. Jesus being the firstborn, it says elsewhere, of many brethren, many siblings. His death and resurrection means there's lots more to come. But he was the first. He was God's preeminent witness, and he is the firstborn from among the dead. And he is therefore the promise of all the rest that are going to come. All the rest that will be coming. That will be a great day. Also look at the last thing. He's the ruler. Some, some versions say prince of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, it's easy to forget uh, times like this and, and really throughout history. John, this same author, says elsewhere that Satan is the god of this world, that he rules over this world. And that really is the case today. But over the earth, God, the Trinity, the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit still sovereignly rule over everything that happens in the universe. So that nothing in time or in eternity can happen unless God causes or allows it. In that sense, he is still sovereignly in control. Scripture says elsewhere that all things serve his purposes. You know, even evil acts that are done still in some way, many times that we can't understand, still will serve God's purposes because he has that kind of power. But also in this book about the summing up of all things, when he's called the ruler of the kings of the earth, it's really looking forward, isn't it? Now, we don't get to this till chapter 19, but this is thinking, it's looking forward to King Jesus leaving heaven with a rod of iron on a white horse with a sword and ruling down back on the planet earth and taking over when he puts down all opposition. So he is sovereignly, with the Trinity, overseeing ruling the earth now. But this also looks forward to the fact that he will be, in fact, in person, on this planet, on the earth, the real king of kings. There will be no authority on earth that will withstand him yet to come. So we've got this grace and peace. First thing John tells us, grace and peace from the triune God, from God the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Son. We talked about gushing brides and bridegrooms earlier. <clears throat> you know, if, you're, if you study things and you, you diagram or you outline passages, this is not a good outline. Look what he does. He kind of ruins my good outline. John here, he's, he's just talked about grace and peace from God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. What does he do? He just gushes. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This isn't part of the outline. John is, John's on this island, and he's thinking about the Trinity. He's thinking about the God he knows, Jesus the Son that he had seen and eaten with, the Spirit of God in heaven, and as he's thinking about God and who God is and what he's done and what he's like, he just bubbles over. 
this praise just, it, it comes out of nowhere. This is not part of the outline. He, just, he can't help himself. He is so full of this. And remember, he's lived, he's probably in his 90s here. This is an old guy. Old guy, even by, by any of our standards. And yet there's this vitality that comes through here. He's like a young bride. He's like a young bridegroom. And he's gushing. And listen to what he gushes about. He says, to him who loves us. He's just told us the Trinity loves us. Grace and peace from God, this triune God. To him who loves us. That's ongoing in presence. It's loves. He loves you now. He loves you in the future. He loves you. It won't stop. It'll, it'll keep going. Look at the next phrase, though. Uh, I hope you know that love, as used in our culture, most of the time is absolutely meaningless. Love biblically produces action. Love isn't, I love you, but I do whatever I please. Love biblically is not, I have happy feelings towards you, but I do nothing for your benefit. Biblical love means I do something that is for another person's best interest. So when John says and gushes about this one who loves us, he tells us what God's love did for us. What action did it provoke? He released us from our sins by his blood. The love of God produced action, and this action was to release us from our sins by his blood. Now, think through this for just a minute. He released us from our sins. The, the thought here, you could have a diff, couple different concepts. You remember John uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim, when he's starting out in the story, he's got this heavy burden on his back. It's like a big backpack. I used to uh, camp, and my backpack weighed 90 to 100 pounds. And I would put that thing on, and man, you know, you don't want to go very far very fast. Uh, it's this heavy burden. And part of the thought is it's as if... You've been released. God has come alongside you and he's taken that heavy weight off your back. You know, maybe you're like the turtle, the house on your back. It's all you can do to just crawl around on the ground and God comes and he takes that heavy load off your back. He frees you from your sin. What did it take? It took his blood to free you and I. This sounds ghastly at one sense. In fact, if you read newspaper accounts of Florida or other parts of the Caribbean or the world in which you hear about people still offering sacrifices, it sounds a little gooey, you know, the chickens and the goats. But this throws us back to the way God did things. And if you remember the Jewish economy in the Old Testament, blood was everywhere. No blood, no forgiveness. No blood, no covering for sin. In fact, there's some great books when you read descriptions of the temple. I don't mean to be gross. It was a butcher market. The temple was a butcher place. There was blood flowing constantly. There were troughs under the temple to hold the blood. It was everywhere. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says this blood, these bloody sacrifices. You know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to keep reminding the Jews we've got a problem. And the blood and all these animals that keep being sacrificed reminds us that we've got a problem, that sin is an issue. And it's still not taken care of because the blood is still flowing, because the animals are still being sacrificed. So when this says Jesus released us from our sins, it's at the cost of his blood. And it's not that he cut his finger, is it? It's not that he put a little blood on a piece of paper. 
Remember, biblically, the blood means life. God said in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. So the thought here that he saved us by his blood, it reminds us his life was given for ours. He, the perfect sinless one, died on our behalf, our substitute. So the freedom that he granted us cost him his life. When you and I tend to minimize sin, we've got to remember what sin cost God, what our redemption cost the Father. It cost him his son. Our freedom cost Jesus his life. And there's a mystery related to this. We can read the crucifixion. We can read about the resurrection. But the separation of the Father from the Son and the Father making Jesus the butt of his wrath for sin, we, we won't, we don't, I don't think we can enter into what that looked like for God. We can look on the outside and we can have an appreciation from that, and we should. But the freedom he gives us came because he died for us. It cost him his life, his blood. God's love, the one who loved us, loves us now, loves us future, did something, finished, accomplished, act in the past. What did he do? He released us. How? Through his blood. He saved us. He released us from that awful burden of sin in this life and penalty of sin in the future. Again, just remember, I, I talked to a friend last night whose gift, his spiritual gift is evangelism. And the Davises, uh, was it Wednesday night? at our house, these missionaries to San Diego, I'm overwhelmed when I hear these people because they have a gift of evangelism. And they're, they're getting teary as they talk about seeing their friends and loved ones come to Christ. It's exciting. I mean, it's, it's challenging. And when you think about the future of a person who dies without God and without hope, see, only God's wrath is left. Those who've, who've come under the sun, those who come under the blood of Christ, like the Jews in Egypt, the angel of death, what? He just passes over. But for those who aren't covered by the blood, death is all that's left. If we reject the payment God's made on our behalf, there's nothing left. It's, it's, it's popular to say God is too loving to send people to hell. This is the deal on that. If God didn't spare Jesus... He won't spare someone else. Does that make sense? If he poured out his wrath on his beloved son, why do you think he wouldn't pour out his wrath on someone who's not his son? On a rebel. He would dishonor his son if he did not pass righteous judgment on those who reject his son's payment. There's nothing left without hope and without God. And to those, just like us, John says, we've got him who loves us, released us from our sins by his blood, past tense, accomplished, and he has made us to be kingdom, a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. If I tell somebody that your future in eternity is a priest, you know, probably a little yawn, you know, um, and, and I think it's, it's perspective, isn't it? Perspective is everything. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, we have this great honor, number one. God's so holy, and holiness, I think, is a concept that we understand so poorly that some of this doesn't, it doesn't come through to us. But think of John. John was raised in the Jewish system, wasn't he? 
he knew, guess what? You can't go to God. You can't get close to God. Why? Because one person, once a year, with blood on him, only can go to God. Got to go through the wall. There's the, there's the court of the women. There's the court of the men. There's the sacrifice area. There's the temple. There's the inner temple. How many people got to go to see God at the ark? One. Once. A year. Everybody else had to stay out. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. To be the high priest, to go into God's presence, this was the biggest thing in anyone's life could ever experience. When John tells us we've been made a new kingdom in Jesus' economy to be priests, this is the highest honor anyone could have. You've been elevated to the status above any asking. You get to come without restriction with Jesus' blood shed once for all time to God the Father with nothing holding you back. This is the highest honor any human being could ever have. Not only that, but think of this. You know, we're so, you know, we got binocular vision. We're so narrow-minded and we're so dull. Uh, we look at a gorgeous sunset and we, th- we say, God, I don't want to go to heaven because this is so good. Or I say, God, I ate that steak for dinner. I don't want to go to heaven and there'll be no steak or whatever. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? We look around at the earth and we say, in fact, church at Laodicea, we'll talk about later. We got everything we need, Lord. And the Lord says, no, you don't. you've got nothing. That's what it's like here. We're as good as life can be down here. We're paupers compared to what's to come. When we stand before God as priests with that honor of being in his presence, we're in the best place we could ever be. This is the God who set the stars in the sky. This is the God who made the sunsets that you and I enjoy. This is the God who made the steak that you and I enjoy. You see what I mean? He's the source of all goodness. It doesn't get any better. David said in Psalms, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than anything else. I'd rather spend one day with you, Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. That's the kind of thought we should have. And that's, that's John's gush. He's, you know, he's going to go to heaven in this vision. He's going to see God again. And, and that's, that's where it's at. He's telling us, guys, this is as good as it gets. God loves us. He saved us. He freed us from our sins by his own blood. And now he's brought us into his very presence where we'll be forever. He's telling us this is, this is better than your wild imagination could envision. What God has done for us is raise us from depths we can't perceive to heights we can't imagine. This is as good, it's better than you can ever conceive. This is it. This is what we get. And that's what he's gushing about. He can't hold himself back. He can't help himself. He's gushing like the bride and like the bridegroom. Having said all that, he closes, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Yes. Amen means yes. Exclamation. To this God who loves us, to this God who saves us, to this God who's called us to himself, man, he deserves the glory. He deserves the praise. He deserves the rule of the universe that is his by creation, by right, by redemption. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. That's what he's saying at the end. He just is gushing. You know, when I read this and when I think about this, uh, I wonder, uh, what do you and I gush about? If, if we're talking with somebody, what topic comes up that you just overflow, that you just bubble over about? You know, if you meet some people, 
they'll flip out their wallet and they'll show you pictures of their kids, right? Grandparents, parents. You know, if you talk to somebody else, K-State football, <laughs> they won yesterday. KU basketball, we don't talk about KU football. But you know what I mean? What's that person's passion? If they gush about something, when they're overflowing, what's the theme? What's the subject? Where's their heart at? You know, nothing, nothing on this earth is big enough for the heart God's put in people because he's the only object big enough to, to satisfy us. Nothing else. So ask yourself, as I've certainly asked myself, what do I gush about? What's my passion? If, some, if somebody really knows you, what do they know you're passionate about? John's trying to write this letter from God, and he just can't stop. He just throws this out because this is what's on his heart. What's on your heart? What's on my heart? Where, where's our heart? Where's our passion? Where's our love? Look at verse 7. He's interjected. He's just thrown in the middle of this, this praise this peon of praise, of honor to this God that he just can't help but gush about. Look at verse 7. This is the first prophecy in this book, and this doesn't follow the outline either. He just can't help himself either. He throws this in again. This is the next thing he throws in. Guess what, guys? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will wail. This isn't happy. This is sad. Over him, even so, amen. I think you remember in the first week we said there's almost nothing new in this book of Revelation. Nothing new. When John tells us Jesus is coming, he's quoting the Old Testament, isn't he? Hopefully this sounds familiar. Daniel 7, do you remember? It's been a while. Daniel 7, this is straight out of Daniel 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, John says. Well, Daniel said, I was looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And if you remember that scene, Daniel is looking at the last ghastly, beastly kingdom that rules the earth, and then he He takes a step back and he sees no heaven still ruling and he sees the Ancient of Days. That sounds like the one who was, is, and is to come. That sounds like God the Father to me. That sounds familiar. And this one that comes up with the clouds of heaven sounds a little bit like God the Son, Jesus. That's what John's quoting, Daniel 7. Jesus quotes this, Matthew 26. When he's before the Sanhedrin and the high priest speaking for God points his finger at him and says, I adjure you in the name of the living God. What hypocrisy. Are you the Christ? Jesus leaves the question, uh, absolutely uh, no question in their mind, the answer. He says, you have said it yourself. Yes, I'm the Messiah. And by the way, I tell you that after this, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, that's Daniel 7, coming on the clouds of heaven. I am the one in Daniel 7. I'm the one who goes to the throne of God. I'm it. In fact, in Acts 1, if you remember when Jesus goes with the disciples to the Mount of Olives after the 40 days of appearances, he's lifted off from the earth. And what what happens? And he's received into the clouds of heaven. These aren't white cumulus clouds. 
These are glory clouds. This is a divine reception, if you will. And what do the angels say when the guys are, probably their mouth is still open, they're looking up, he's gone, and the clouds are there, and then he's gone. And what do the angels come and tell them? Guys, he's coming back the same way he left. How did he leave? He left physically from the Mount of Olives into the clouds of heaven. And how is he coming back? He's coming back from heaven in clouds of glory. Revelation 19 gives more detail to the Mount of Olives. This is it. John can't help himself again. He's thinking about Jesus' return. He's gushed over God, the Trinity, and what he's done for us. And now he's gushing over the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. He's coming. He's coming back. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Where's this from? Not a quiz, not a test, actually. Zechariah 12, straight out of Zechariah. Nothing new here. Zechariah 12, speaking of a future day yet to to come for the Jewish nation, says of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God will pour out the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12 says they'll look on me whom they pierced. Zechariah 13, 6, one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Even with this joyous thought of Jesus' return, John reminds that not only will every eye see, remember his first coming, little stable, little burg outside Jerusalem, kind of secret, few people knew, not many. Matthew 24 says, no, when he comes a second time, what's it like? It's like that lightning starts in the east and goes all the way to the west. Every eye will see. There will be no doubt. In fact, in Matthew 24, when Jesus says people will come and they'll say, well, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is there, don't worry. Listen, if there's any question, it's not the Messiah. If there's any doubt, it's not Jesus' return. There will be no doubt. Every eye will see him. And there will be this, this sense of, Loss, we'll look at here in a minute, because they'll look on the one they pierced. What does that mean? For the Jews, Zechariah 12.10, it says, They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly, like the bitter weeping for a firstborn. Israel, the Jewish nation, alive at this time, is going to look on Jesus at his return, When they see the wounds, guess what strikes them? Guess what all of a sudden they realize? It was him all along. It's the one we rejected as a nation. It's the one we said no to. It's the one we wanted crucified. So when Israel sees Jesus return, there's a sense of loss. It's like God gave me a son and what did I do? I threw him away. I rejected him. And now all of a sudden the impact hits me. The one I thought I wanted all along is the one I've already rejected. There's a sense of bitter loss. I could have had him all the time. Weeping like I've lost a child because the realization hits Jesus was the Messiah. But also, all the tribes of the earth, that's Gentiles. That's pagan nations like most of us come from. That's the guys who aren't Jews. Why will they mourn and weep? Psalm 2, one of the most uh, clearly direct messianic psalms says... God's installed his Messiah on his Mount Zion. And you guys do whatever you want, but God's still in control and he's got his choice for king. And, verse 12, do homage to the Son, worship the Son. 
so that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. His wrath will soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Listen, as you read through this book of Revelation, you know what the Gentiles repeatedly do? They shake their fist in the face of God and say, no way. In fact, as the judgments are poured out, each judgment is a call to repentance for those on the earth. And in two or three separate passages, it says they refused to repent. They still stood up. They say, we'll choose our man. That's the Antichrist. We'll choose our armies, the armies of the world, and we'll go head to head with you. And they do. So when King Jesus comes from, the, from heaven to the earth, the Jews look and mourn. We rejected the, the one that came. The Gentiles see the conquering king. See, they didn't receive him as savior. And now he's coming as their judge. And it is not a good time. He comes with a rod of iron. Verse 8 says, to close this passage, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the A and the Z. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. God's just reminding us here, right at the beginning, he's writing the churches. He hasn't really said that much None of the content he wants to specifically address, but he said, guys, just know this, I am it. I am it. I am God Almighty. I'm before all, I'm after all. There's no one before me, there's no one after me. I am the Almighty Supreme Power. God the Father, eternally existent. The Spirit, Godhead in the Spirit, perfect. And the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. The one who loved us, freed us from our sins by his blood. John thinks about that and gushes. In the end, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, different writer, same theme. John wants us to know, and God wants us to know, when he says that, closes this section, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I am it. I'm the beginning or the end of anything you can conceive. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that after Jesus has conquered this earth, After he has instituted God's new kingdom, it says he himself turns and lays the kingdoms of this earth and this world before God the Father, who just spoke these last words. And it says, so that God will be all and in all. All things will be summed up again in God. Remember he said grace and peace? Well, that's what we get in the end. God has made his world right again. Sin and rebellion alienated us from God through this world, this cosmos, in a turmoil. But in the end, King Jesus comes back. He restores these worlds. The worlds of, our, of this world, the, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah, King Jesus. And God brings everything back to where it should be under his rule. The, the best place to be, the only place to be. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you loved us so much that you gave us, you gave in our place your own son. Lord, you poured out your wrath, your righteous, holy wrath for sin on one that you loved. For a father and a son whose relationship, Lord, we can't even imagine, that unity and love between you was all that you'd ever known. Uh, Suddenly you were cut off. 
Lord, such a price for our redemption. Lord, help us to hold these weighty, important, life-changing truths in our mind. Help us be like John, this old guy who'd been living on the earth all these years. He's a prisoner on an island. Life does not look good. And yet, Father, his thoughts, his heart, his mind is set on you. And he overflows with praise and with thanks because he knows you. He knows who you are and what you've done. And Father, I pray that that example of John is our example. Lord, help us to be rightly overcome with the awe of you, with the appropriate fear of you, with love for you and thanks for you. Lord, like that new bride or that new bridegroom, help just love for you to be that passion, that theme that bubbles up out of our hearts as we consider who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, all the marvelous promises we have to look forward to. In Jesus' name, amen.